Hi everyone, welcome to Tangible. I'm Nia, a postgraduate student here in Melbourne and a founder of Learn with Nia, an organization changing the way English is taught and learned by engaging students in thoughtful conversation in Vietnam and here in Australia. From my first episode, I invited Dr. Alice Pavlovsky, an anthropologist, a researcher, a teacher, and an amazing human being. But most importantly, he's one of the teachers that are responsible for 80% of my work. So without further ado, welcome to our first episode. All right. Uh, Thank you so much for joining Tangible. So... In the questions list that I sent to you, I, I told you that it is inspired by the concept of knowledge translation, yeah? Yeah. But knowledge translation is the subject that Andrew taught me in my third year at Monash, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's why I told you, you and Andrew are responsible for 80% of my work. <laughs> well, I'm very glad because I'm certainly excited about it and I know that Andrew is excited about the work that he's doing. So. Yeah. Yeah, and being passionate about it is what makes you successful. So that's my personal opinion. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So um, I don't want to go around too much. So if you can, can you introduce yourself uh, and your work to the audience? Sure. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Dr. Alex Pavlotsky. Um, I'm a cognitive anthropologist. Um, I started off with illustration and trying to communicate scientific concepts with art. That was my honors focus. Then I did a comic ethnography, but it became about movement and embodiment. Um, that was my PhD research. And then after that, I worked with radicalization, uh, taught at the University of Auckland and was really interested in conflict, conflict and war. Um, so that's sort of my research history. Uh, moonlit in private industry the entire time. So mostly UX research recently, but before then system analysis, general consulting, all of that kind of jazz. So one foot in the academic and research world, the other foot in, in private sector. Uh, and I like drawing and trying to be creative with the way that we communicate things. Also teaching, I really enjoy it. I'm a huge anthropology nerd. Um, so yeah, I think that's me. Uh, and Nia was my student, so conflict of interest being immediately present if there was <laughs> Yeah, so I met Alex in, um, I think, 2017 when I was a student at Monats College. Mm -hmm. You taught me two subjects. One is, I think one of the unit is communication, media, and society. And the other one is a unit in so sociology. Yeah. Um, but I um, really enjoy it. Yeah, that that media subject was so much fun. so good. Yes, I had so, so much yeah. fun with that subject. Yeah, I just re I just realized recently that it took me more. It, it actually took me a lot to like a subject mm. and to do well in a subject. Mm. I need to have good teacher, passionate about the subject. The yeah. subject has to be good itself and. I wanted to ask complicated question. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I the part of the reason why it was so much fun teaching that media subject and having students like you there 
<laughs> the ones who ask complicated questions is because it's an opportunity to talk about semiotics, which is something that you have to study if you're doing analysis and ethnography and anthropology. Uh, and then you're just applying semiotics to media. So it was just, you know, we got to play with James Bond and perfume adverts and all of that kind of the semiotics. It was just the fun part. All of that key to communication, which is all key to good teaching. So, yeah, trying to keep it on topic. Yeah. All right, so let's jump into the topic today. So we talk about ethnography in classroom, but even the term, honestly, when I ask my 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 pre-subject teachers friends, ask mm. them, have you heard of ethnography before? Many of them said yes. Many of them said no. Mm-hmm. There's one answers that surprised me. So she told me that the word sound very big mm. and it sounds scary for her but actually when i learn i'm I'm gonna let you explain the definition of ethnography honestly when i know what is ethnography it actually in our everyday life we mm. do it every day so if you have explained the term ethnography for someone who had never heard of that before or to a five-year-old kid, how would you explain it? Uh, I would begin by saying it means two things. Um, one is very surface and available. So ethnos is culture, behavior, humanity. It's humanity. And graphy is the process of writing. So on a very sort of immediate level, ethnography is describing the world in which you live. Like that's that's its first definition. And describing it by thinking about it really hard. So that has immediate implications for education. Um, wonderful, wonderful stuff to play with. Um, but there's also another version of ethnography. Um, and in this sense, ethnography is a practice of understanding other people by really occupying their shoes, by stepping into their worldview. Uh, So it's a form of research methodology, um, which is what a lot of the passionate work that I'm excited about in ethnography. So going to places, putting yourself physically in that location, experiencing things through that person's sort of perspective as much as you can while asking questions and sort of reaching, reaching this point of being able to understand somebody really within context. I mean, never ultimately, because that's impossible, but really having that sense of understanding of values and uh, pressures of experience and the sensory and all of this kind of stuff. And that's, yeah, research methodology also, another one of the things I'm passionate about. So both of those are great. One is easier um, because one is just describing your ethnos, the place within which you live, humanity and its rules, really useful, incredible teaching tool, fantastic for perspective shifting. And the other one is this sort of participatory, really radical methodology, which is, yeah, really cool. And both of them are ethnography. Uh, depends on how you want to use it. Yeah. So when you talk about um, we have to put ourselves in other people's shoes in mm. ethnography, how is it different from being um, empathetic mm. to other people? Uh, two big things. One is there's a very strong objectivist 
almost scientific conception behind it. I mean, it depends on how you go. Some people do older ethnography to get really poetic. So there's certainly a very artistic side to it. But classical ethnography is verifiable, interview-based, uh, heavily logged. So you're always writing down where you are, what time of day, whatever else. So it's something that is almost like a historical record. And it's got this really strong scientific conception. Um, the reason why that makes it different from being empathic is because uh it's too easy to become one with your participants if you're empathic it's too easy to start to take on their view and lose your sense of justice and your own alternative so ethnography uh this is the second thing that makes it different it trains you if you're doing anthropology stuff you're trained to start to step into this perspective where you see yourself another person and then the context within which you exist as one sort of understanding so yeah it's you have to kind of practice it you have to understand that there's social rules you have to understand that you have your own subjectivity and bias you have to understand that the, there's things that you don't understand about this person's life up until this point and you can investigate them so yeah that's the methodology side of it i'm rambling probably uh, let me know if i'm not being clear and if you want me to clarify anything yeah, actually very clear. Um, this one question I want to ask, because um, mm-hmm. I remember when I learned this in Anthropology 101 back in 2020 in your, mm. in your online class, there was one part of losing yourself mm. when you practice ethnography that I still remember to this day because I feel like being empathetic to other people without having a battery mm. is a way for us to lose ourselves. Yeah. But it's also a way for other people to manipulate without, maybe we know, but my, my, a lot of time that I don't know that yeah. being empathetic and even practicing ethnography without having a clear boundary can easily make myself lose my identity. Yeah. So my question is here is if, because I, I, I'm going to take it back to the classroom. So mm-hmm. if we explain this term to teachers and it's so easy to see teachers to bring their work home, to be too empathetic to their students, mm-hmm. to carry too much. Mm-hmm. Part of that is because of their personality, but also from what I, from my position, a lot of that is because of the rule, because of expectation, because of society. Mm-hmm. How can teacher use ethnography? But not before that. What is ethnography for teachers there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really big question. Um there's a lot of potential applications i think um i might try to respond to the question you were forming before uh if i understood it correctly yeah um in the sense of being in the field one of the things that ethnography would probably have to teach teachers is the professional capacity to detach um understanding what version of yourself is presentable even with the most empathic sense it's weird like it's hard to explain the ethnographic process to people who haven't experienced it but if you just put on a mask 
um, if you differentiate between the professional you and the researcher you, and you're in the field, literally living in, in a location where you can't escape the scenario, it becomes impossible to sustain. It becomes too exhausting. So separating the personal and the professional is, is really tricky. Um, ethnography as a practice sort of teaches you to be able to present an authentic version of yourself, but within boundaries. Um, and, and I just found that to be like, it's, it's an essential skill that a lot of anthropologists have to learn that I think makes it easier for us to insulate ourselves from like the stress and the exhaustion of all of that kind of stuff. Um, we still get overloaded. So completely related, completely relating to teachers, but yeah, it's a really useful way of looking at things. I'm going to present my authentic self, which makes it easier for me to be able to sustain this, but I'm going to draw boundaries about where I'm going to be able to, you know, how much I can invest personally, how much, how much I'm willing to reveal, like generating a persona, um, that is researcher, but at the same time, not fully, not fully you weird. It's, there's a lot of self-analysis involved. Uh, yeah, it's a long process. Mm. Wow. Um, um, but, yeah. but, but, but just also, uh, I think just being able to encourage the ethnographic mindset, um, who, who would be the student base? Like what kind of student base are you talking about? Are we talking about adults? Are we talking about kids? Are we talking about um, young people, like what, what kind of teaching? Cause there's so, there's a difference between the way that we deliver the material. Yeah. There too. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Uh, I would say, good question though. The, even <laughs> though I, I'm learning to become a secondary school teacher. Yeah. In my mind, my students are always like teenagers yeah. Young people. Maybe I'm I'm aiming myself to become a professional. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, I find that interesting because I taught at university for many years. Um and and the best experience that I had in terms of being able to control a classroom and communicate effectively and all of that was definitely teaching kindergarten. So as far as I'm concerned, everybody is always three to five years old. And if you can't maintain their attention, that's the way it works. Not because not not because it's a weird condescending thing to say, like to call your students three-year-olds, but I think a lot of the behavioral methods yeah. for keeping the attention of children applies totally to, to adults and teenagers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that makes sense too, because I feel like even when I'm in my workplace, um yes. though I expect them to and I work in a university as well now. Though I expect them to behave as adult, <clears throat> because they are put in a setting, a setting of a university, but yeah. when situations happen, they're so irrational. Yeah, and I think, I think, I think your method is right because, um, regardless of what age or cohort you teaching, people are irrational, mm. unless you're a monk. But also, but also kind of amazingly rational. Like there's three-year-olds that are capable of doing incredible things too. Like it goes both ways. I think 
three-year-olds are very overt about the fact that if you don't keep their attention and if you're not making your content engaging, you've lost them. They're, they're yeah. off. They're doing something else. And so they, they generate a really good baseline. Like I think that if you think about it the same way, our attention span isn't that different. We're just better at hiding uh, how much we're paying attention as we get older. So it's the same idea, like having a presence, being enthusiastic about the content. Three-year-olds will smell it on you if you're full of crap. They will just be like, they don't care about, the teacher doesn't care about this. I'm not going to care about it. And so like, that's a basic thing, but it applies to every single cohort. So like, I think, I think kids are a more honest version of adults. So you do the things that would work for kids and it usually works for adults because it's the same processes and the same things. Um, This is my neurocognitive anthropology slide kicking in. Like, yeah, because it's the same brain. It's just better at bullshitting to itself about things. Mm. Yeah. Um, but ethnography, I, I, I feel like we're, we're leaving ethnography behind. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to bring you back to the questions. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think you sort of answer part of this, but I also yeah. want to ask you again, just to make it more clear um, to the audience. So what are the most, not the most, what are the elements of ethnography? Mm in your in your teaching or in your in your practice of ethnography <laughs> we're not talking about whoever anthropologists out there i'm talking about you yeah so what is your elements of ethnography yeah. uh well elements i don't know i don't know if i'm able to deliver that off the cuff that quickly um but ethnography is a mode i go into it's like pulling a lever um and it's something that you can you can sort of find and they've had a lot of years of practice of it. Um, and I guess what it is, is just a curiosity about everything is just super heightened. Um, and judgment is suspended. That would be the way that I would describe my internal sort of shift. If I'm being an ethnographer, uh, I can, uh, first of all, social conventions are out the window because the most important thing to me is to ask you a question. So uh, I start acting like a bit of an idiot, like a naive person and coming up and asking questions. Um, I will just be infinitely curious. Um, moral judgment and stuff is now suspended and hanging in the background. It's not gone forever, but um, within the ethnographic mode, that's the case. Um, yeah, and then I'm just enthusiastic about the experience because you want to get yourself invited to whatever it is the people are doing. So you have to be enthusiastic about it. Um, open to participation is really key, like experience hungry. I think that those are the things that I would define as uh, things that are my ethnography mode. That's me switching into ethnography mode. So that is it's useful, four, it's useful is it? to have. Sorry. Is that four? So curiosity. Yeah. Enthusiastic. Yeah. Open uh, to participate. Yeah, that's right. We're seeking for, to participate. Um, uh, judgment. Yeah, and suspension, no, suspending of moral judgment. Yeah. And that gets you a really long way because, like, all of that comes together in this sort of naive state of just being curious. Uh, and it's amazingly charming um, because a lot of people really enjoy being – like, one of the things that's – I found this really interesting in my ethnographic experience – People are really, like, there's always a barrier, but people are quite excited to talk about themselves if you are enthusiastic to listen. 
Um, and that's one of those things that it just, just happens. And people go, how did you get to, how did you interview that person? It's just like, well, I just asked them the question and was actually interested in it. Um, and you can get all kinds of information that way. So it's part of being good. It's not of being inviting to people to talk to. Yeah. And I think you forgot one more. I think it's not really detached yourself. Detached. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> A little bit. I, I I don't I don't feel like I, I actually think it's a really important to keep yourself in there because that's what makes it authentic. Mm. Um, I think the idea of detaching yourself completely doesn't quite work, but mm. like that process of suspending moral judgment to me yeah. is really connected with being able to. Because if I'm if if somebody tells me something shocking, and I've interviewed people who've told me things quite shocking, um, my human normal Alex reaction would be like, "Whoa, what the hell." Um, but if you enter that ethnographic mode, everything that is a startle reflex, um, I do my best to translate into a form of curiosity. So you go, whoa, and you can still have that reflex because it would be inhuman not to have it. And then you would ask a question about it as opposed to making a moral judgment. And that's like incredibly effective because again, you know, like it, it demonstrates your curiosity even in the face of something that's quite confronting. doesn't mean that that confronting stuff isn't something that you'll have to process by yourself later on. Um, quite important to point out, it's not something that you push down. Like there are moments where you have to sit down with it all. Um, but in terms of being in the field, it's the best way to go as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. yeah. So, so based on the important elements that you you have, I just want to share a story of mine. Just that's just happened quite recently. It's just not. It has nothing to do with classroom. It has nothing to do with with education at all. But me educating myself to be a better human being in dating. In dating, yeah. So before I don't really have a concept of like what is dating for me. The concept of dating has been ruined. By Andrew in 2020, in 2017, when he taught me the history of dating into in in the World War One, and I was like, so what's the point of having a boyfriend now? What's the point of having a family now? And I still remember I asked you after you study all of this stuff, why do you still want to have kids? Why do you still want to have family? Because I don't want. And I think I I am after I finished my final. Semester at Monash with um, the politics of identity, I feel completely naked, and I feel people out there are naked in front of me. I don't feel interested in getting to know people anymore. That how sad my life. Yeah, that's is. a little bit sad. Yeah, <laughs> that's how sad my life is in two thousand nineteen. What what was it? What was it about that particular subject, that identity subject, that pushed you over the line? I think with the politics of identity, I think um, I draw too much into the story of um, so the study of Zygmunt Bauman, Freud. People are filled with trauma. I was so broken back then. I don't want to have another broken pieces in front of me anymore. Because two broken pieces together would be more broken, isn't it? Because we we socially constructed. We that's that's what I think. But I know I know for sure that I didn't think further 
or deep enough. Luckily, because of two years of COVID, I went back to Vietnam, healed myself. So back to my dating game again. <laughs> and um, I do, I, I really agree with you. I agree with you when you say when we have ethnography, it's make us so charming. I think charming is also being charming also part of my personality. But also, I think I'm, I am also trained to be a charming person, to ask questions, to stay curious. That's why it's so easy to, to get guy talking to me when I'm on date, especially I'm doing um, digital dating these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I also put my, I also suspend my moral judgment about them. Um quite later on the relationship because I want to know more what's going on with this person, what history has made them. And I'm, I'm very enthusiastic in talking to them and getting to know them. But sometimes it just feels so easy that the moment I feel like I know that when they share too much about themselves to me, I know how it's going to end. If I'm genuinely... I mean, I'm genuinely interested in getting to know more about them as human being. But my problem is I'm, I'm just too much into ethnography and to understand a human being that I forget the chemistry. I don't have that at all. It's so rare for me to have that with other human beings. That's why sometimes I ask myself, is something wrong with me? What if I, I'm, I'm, I, I've been practicing so much, it's become natural, then I can't connect with other people. But then I realized after every ending, after saying goodbye, bye-bye to them, each of them teach me a lesson about me and about my life. But the only way I can do that is because I attach myself to their story to understand their life through their worldview. But because of that, I, I'm not saying every time my heart got broken a little bit more. I'm just saying after that, I just feel like I don't know who I'm going, who I'm going to die next. <laughs> yeah so that that is my story with ethnography outside the classroom yeah i i i i love it i think there's a big thing there um where the distinction between the two types of ethnography that i mentioned at the beginning of our conversation the idea of it being a form of writing about the world and then an immersive practice it feels to me like you are living in the writing about the world, that logical component of, of ethnographic practice, because the methodology is like it forces you to confront a lot of questions about things like identity and self. And the reason why it does is because a great deal of the practice isn't, it's, it's, 
the the thing that I always say in all of my classes, and I'm sure that you would have heard me say this in anthropology, um, is that the primary method, the primary tool of ethnography is is you, the person who's conducting the ethnography. That seems like a a flippant thing to say, but it's actually really deeply profound because what it does is it presumes that people have a shared physical experience of existence for all of our differences, which are very, very many. Like this idea of this base physicality that we all experience is something that allows us to spend a moment in each other's shoes is quite key to that idea, which means that it's interesting because the scientific side of ethnography, I'm a huge fan, of course, and I practice it myself. Like it's one of my, it's why people hire me. Um, and and you do this analysis where you can do all kinds of rich research that overlaps with 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 data and, and and user experience and all of this kind of mathematical scientific stuff. But it's still a story that gets teased out. Um, the 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 downside of all of that is that it, it often gets understated how how physical, um, sensuous and experiential that process is. It's because you are the vessel of communication ethnography has to be like you are thrown into the world and you are forced one of the great things about the ethnographic self like this is kind of weird part of the persona and the suspension of moral judgment is that i am stupidly oblivious to risk sometimes when i put on my ethnographic face because of that sort of hunger for experience one of the things that you call out for is that you go out there and you you, you make all risky decisions and you put yourself into situations where you're talking potentially to dangerous people simultaneously you're not kind of opening up completely and there's this this other process so I don't know. I, I feel like when you were describing your experiences of trying to being able to read people and engage and step into that role and then not being sure where you are and then simultaneously um, being like, I can kind of see where it's going. I can see the end because the, you're you're writing the story. You're, you're writing the ethnography of the interaction. Um, there's a whole other experience within there where it's just occupying space and, and experiencing things. And, and I think that, that that would potentially fill in the other side. And one of the things about ethnography is, and it's horrible to say because it sounds awfully condescending because it's got to do with personal experience and, and living through stuff. But... Uh, one of the things that ethnography forces you to do is it forces you to really get okay with yourself. Like it forces you to go, which elements of me are authentically me, which are the non-negotiable components? Because to be really good at ethnography, it helps to be as you described, to be able to have that charm, to have the capacity to listen and make people open up. Um, and a lot of the time that's just, you know, asking the right questions and being good at shutting up at the appropriate time. Um, but once you, there's a point at which you've practiced enough where you have boundaries, where you realize that there's elements of yourself that you need to insert, where you also have to be able to draw back and be able to say, this isn't relevant, not even for the, for your own protection, but because sometimes you don't want to have a conversation about everything under the sun, you're doing research. Um, and that means that you have to understand then if you have to draw boundaries, how you come across, how you come across when you're drawing boundaries. And then you have to come to terms with the fact that you look the way that you do and that is automatically going to have an impact on the way that you interact with people, which is one of those things that everybody knows, but it's difficult to talk about because, you know, we exist behind our eyeballs and we think that it's the same. 
but we also know that because I am male of this particular ethnicity, I'm going to get treated in one way because because you are this way, because anybody else is that way. That impacts. It's the phenomenology, the experiential phenomenology of everything. So that understanding, that realization of seeing yourself in a room and the way that people react to you within that space, that's part of ethnography, and it's really useful as a form of self-realization. Like, yeah, there's usually a point where somebody's done a little bit of ethnographic fieldwork, like a student who I might be supervising or something where they have this moment where they're like, you see their mind reconfiguring everything. And that's when they've really stepped into that ethnographic space. Uh, quite often they'll be depressed for a while because their cognitive triangle fell down. But that's a whole other story. Thank you everyone for listening to the first part of my conversation with Alex. The second part of this conversation will be uploaded next week. So you can follow Tangible for the upcoming episode. Though I didn't make any money out of it, it teaches the algorithm to show this conversation to more people. Maybe one of them needed to hear this. Who knows? Once again, thank you for listening and I talk to you later. Bye.